You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Well, thank you guys for having me. Um, my name is Cameron Smith. The LinkedIn profile, you're more than welcome to check it out. It's not terribly exciting. I write for AL.com. I joke that I'm on conservative island over there. I'm an opinion writer. Um, as far as my day job, I'm state programs director and general counsel for a group called the R Street Institute in Washington, D.C. It's a think tank where we work on a lot of different public policy issues. So I've sort of built a career in being in and around politics, and this stuff is near and dear to my heart. Uh, I have a heart for the church. I have a heart for God's people and carrying out the Great Commission regardless of where God puts you. Um, I, more than, I've had more than my fair share of Jonah moments in politics where I've become disgusted and said, I don't want to be there. I don't like it. It's disgusting. It's painful. Um, but God has basically said, no, you need to go there and you can obey or not. And um, I, I will tell you, I'm, I'm trying imperfectly to honor God with my political engagement. And that's a little bit about what we'll talk about tonight. How many of y'all are uh, ready for the next election in four years? I'm assuming if you're like me, uh, well, the next presidential, we, we get a midterm in two years. That'll be even more exciting. Um, I, I joke, but this has been awful, truthfully. Um, we've had two candidates of very low character and to suggest otherwise is dishonest as Christians I think we need to call them like we see them we don't always have to speak we don't always have to pick a fight but we need to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received let's talk about this the first thing I want to get to is this is called lenses what's the Christian's political lens and, and, and sometimes we get a little carried away because we decide our politics are special, that our biblical mandates, what God said, it doesn't apply when we post something on Facebook. Like, we get to just say whatever we want. Let's, let's just look at God's word and see what it says. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That sounds like this campaign, right? Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Imagine that. A political life where we're not afraid. It's right there in scripture. And finally, Matthew five forty-three to 44. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm not telling y'all anything y'all didn't know. Y'all, most of y'all know those verses. You can recite those verses. The problem is a lot of us are failing to apply those verses. 
in a very specific context of our political life. I think the biggest challenge that I've seen this cycle and something that I regularly deal with in politics is fear. We, we have all these adjectives to describe what we're seeing in our politics, but I believe those are symptoms of a core problem, and the problem is fear. Again, I, as an opinion writer, I'm more than happy to make stuff up, but again, I think we should probably go back to, to Scripture. Fear not. No, I am serious about this. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you, I'll help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Well, folks, that's pretty clear. If you agree with the thesis that our political life shouldn't be any different than the rest of our lives, what's our excuse for fear? I don't think we have one. I I don't believe that it is biblical for Christians to look at the political process, look at what's out there, whether it's Supreme Court, whether it's the legislature. It doesn't matter. If you are terrified of what is ahead of you, what does that say about what you think about God? What does it say about how you treat this notion of fearing not? Were you afraid in yesterday's election? That's a question. Somebody shout it out. I'm assuming the answer is some of you, after I said all that, were afraid. What were you afraid of? Shout it out. (laughs) Either side winning. Um, Well, that's well-founded. What else? Well, a, a lot of the things that I've heard have been, well, the makeup of the Supreme Court could change for a generation. Life. We might not have a chance to protect life in the future. What about God's definition of marriage? What about any number of different topics before the court? That's a major fear. I've heard people fearful about the economy, saying, man, I just got my insurance premium. Oh, wow, this affordable care thing. Ah, I don't know if I can afford this. I don't know if I can afford the economy the way it is. But like all of you, I heard a lot of fear. Are you less afraid now that you know the result of the election? Why? And and I want to just leave that question out there. Because if you were fearful... And now you are not. You need to think about that process. You need to think about where you are putting your faith. This is a critical issue that a lot of us just don't give much thought. Because we just say, hey, here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. I want more of what I like. Let's keep going and going. I would urge you to stop. And think about what this says. Not about your republicanism or your liberalism or any of the isms. But what it says about the role as a Christian that you're giving politics in your life. I would be willing to bet, based on what I know about the demographics of this room, that there are some of you in here that have Fox News on much more than you have your Bible open. Think about that. Does the Bible speak 
to this type of behavior, this political primacy. If you can see the icon up there, it gives you a hint. Yeah, it does. We need to be very cautious in this context as, as believers of political idolatry. That we are looking to a politician, whether it's Trump or somebody in Congress or a judge or whatever, to deliver us from the problems that we face. Just, just listen to this language. Listen to what's here and think about it in our current context. This is from 1 Samuel 8. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying... Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. If that rhetoric doesn't hit home, it should. Because we know what happened with Saul. We know ultimately David would become a man after God's own heart, but we know that Saul wasn't. And that the people of Israel paid a price for having Saul as their king. And I think that, again, this is a matter of where do we put our faith. When we look at troubling issues around us. It's not to suggest in any way that these issues aren't real and that we shouldn't respond. We, We should. We should live in the world. But to be so afraid of it that we call on somebody, some institution, some political reality that's more powerful and more meaningful than our God, we've missed. As Christians, we have missed. Now the rest of the world... They don't see this. They don't see a God that loves them. They don't see a God that's the most powerful being in the universe, that controls the sun and the moon and the stars. They just see the context of what's there. It's the Hobbesian state of nature. Every man against every man. As believers, we need to reject that. We also need to act that way. We need to respond to what we claim to believe is true And that means subordinating the political world. You're talking to somebody that makes his living in and around politics. It needs to be subordinated to our Savior, to the commission that we have set forth before us. So what does this look like? There's some very clear examples in Scripture how we should respond to political institutions. First, take a stand. This is out of Daniel. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where his windows in his upper chamber opened towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. One of Daniel's strongest virtues was that he was unflappable in his faith. When the guard came to his house um, in another section, the, the Bible says that Daniel responded with prudence and discretion. He, he didn't freak out. He wasn't a freak out guy, and he stayed the course. And this is something that we need to think about, especially in the context of religious liberty. You're never going to find anybody that wants to defend his religious liberty as much as a lot of the people in this room, as much as I do. 
But think about it in the context of Scripture. Where is God's power shown strong? It's in context where people have very little religious liberty. Think about the consequences for Daniel doing what he did. He literally opened his window and prayed. And they threw him in a lion's den. I mean, we're far away away from that in the United States. But that's very clearly a government structure that's rejecting religious liberty that God used even that to honor himself because of the way Daniel behaved, the way Daniel responded. I won't read this whole passage, but the second one is also from Daniel. If you want to see it, master class in how to respond to a very oppressive government regime, read the book of Daniel. This is my, with three little boys, this is one of my favorite passages because they know the story of the fiery furnace. Y'all have all heard it. You were told it as children. You will tell it to your children. Sure. But a lot of times we miss a little piece of this. It's right here in verse 17 and I guess 16 and 17. It's their response to the king when the king threatens them. When the king says, if you don't bow down, I'm gonna throw you in that furnace and you can see it and you will burn and your God can't save you. And what they respond, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God with whom, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And here's the kicker. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we'll not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Think about that. Here they're, they're looking at the flames. And I don't think that's any different than a lot of us looking at what's happening in our culture. Looking at what's happening in our political life. We're looking at this. We see this and it is, it is hard to look at. We can feel the heat. And here's an example of three men. Incidentally, who were government officials. Who this was like a big idol worshiping party. Come here and bow down and just don't worry about it. You don't actually have to believe any of it. Just nod it. Lay down. And they just said no. They said no. And our God will deliver us. And if he doesn't, we still won't do it. Because we trust that God's plan for us is better than any offer out here. And I suggest that in terms of a Christian political lens on a lot of these policy issues, that's the right answer. We need to honor God with everything we say and do. That's our primary focus. And there are going to be a lot of idols, a lot of things that are suggesting just bow down a little bit. Just compromise your faith a little bit. Just kind of walk away. And just remember what Daniel did. Open the windows. Stand up. You don't need to be mean. We don't need to be angry people. Scripture's clear. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In this campaign, I've seen a lot of that. And that does not honor God. But what do we see in the context in Daniel? Every time these people, put the, these men put themselves in harm's way and the king saw God. 
And I think we need to think about that in terms of what we're facing right now. Really interesting election. And we'll talk about some of those specifics here in a second. But when we're looking at this, I think we need to think about all of our response, all in our, of our engagement of not beating the other side, but helping the king see God. Because if we can do that, not only do we honor God, but we can help out the people around us. That's what we talk about all the time in church. Every Sunday, it's how do we impact the world for Christ? And I think this is a real opportunity to do just that, but it needs to be put in its rightful role. So now I will talk about the lovely technicalities of what happened and what it means, which is probably the reason y'all are here anyway. Um, First of all, Republicans secured majorities in the House and the Senate. That is significant for very obvious reasons. The ability to confirm nominees to the court in the Senate, not just judicial nominees, but you've got all these cabinet-level appointments and things like that that require confirmation in the Senate. That process becomes much easier for Republicans to do that if they have the Senate. Obviously, with the House and the Senate, they can put things on the president's desk for the president to sign. That's, again, an issue where uh, Republicans didn't even really try in the last term because it would go out of the House, the Senate would pick it up, it would be filibustered and never make it to the president. That's unlikely to happen. Obviously, Donald Trump won the presidency. Uh, How he won it is actually very interesting. Um, Y'all have probably seen some stuff on social media about Republicans haven't done this since the Stone Age. It's not exactly true. If the Stone Age was 2007, it would be true. Um, That's the last time that Republicans had the trifecta. They had it very briefly. Then the Democrats had it for two years, starting in 2008. These things are short-lived in large part because we're a divided country. We're split. I know sitting in here in Alabama, it's like everybody believes what we do. Not true. Not even amongst Republicans. A California Republican and an Alabama Republican are very different. Need to be aware of that. But if you look at where the country is, in terms of where the votes fall along partisan lines, it's split. It's not like 80-20, it's roughly 50-50. And as a result of that, it's easy for the half that wins, that has this trifecta to say, oh, we just should do everything we want to do the way we want to do it right now. And they do that. And then people kind of get sick of that who are on the other half. They figure out how to get half plus one. And then they undo everything you did. That should strike a lot of you as silly, but that's absolutely what's about to happen. As you've had eight years of President Obama, really the critical area was when they had the trifecta. When Democrats had President Obama and had the House and the Senate, they had the Affordable Care Act and some other stuff that... Republicans couldn't stop. The first things Republicans will probably address and undo are those things. And so we really need to be thinking about this as just a practical matter. As Christians looking at this, the whole prudence thing, the whole let's be measured in our approach here, suggests that we might want to think about not doing the exact same thing we've watched everybody do immediately before now. So that's something to think about. Clinton won the popular vote. Uh, We have an electoral college system that has electors from the various states. States have a different number of electors. Donald Trump won that. 
Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. She actually got more total raw votes than Donald Trump. He will be the president, but that's important to remember. By about 200,000 votes, she actually got more votes in terms of raw number of votes than he did. And so this idea of, well, Republicans want everything, therefore like 80, 90% of the country is in agreement and they have a mandate, we really need to think about that. Because if you just look at the raw vote totals, it, it suggests it's a lot more divided than you think. Some of the nitty-gritty of what happened. Trump lagged Mitt Romney's two, 2012 popular vote total by about 1.35 million votes. This notion that everybody sort of heard about of, oh, we're going to have all this record turnout and everything right now does not look to be the case, and I don't think that that will change. The kicker was that Clinton came up short of Barack Obama's 2012 total by 6.12 million votes. There's your election right there, folks. These things are a lot closer than anyone wants to admit. In politics, hyperbole is frequent because everybody wants a mandate because guess what? We all want to do what we want to do. I'm not sure about the biblical principle backing that sentiment, but it's a reality in politics. And so please keep this in context that as conservatives and Republicans look at this and it's important to look at the other side and say, wait a minute, this could have easily gone the other way. So remember that when you're looking at all these maps on the different news channels and they look really, really red, well, look at the numbers, look at what's there and remember that uh, there are a lot of folks who feel like their political voice was just silenced. I don't know where y'all were in 2008. I had the privilege of being a staffer on Capitol Hill, and I got to be run over by the Affordable Care Act. Um, regardless of your politics, I, I, I got to see that uphand, uh, firsthand. There was no interest in the other side's opinion. There was no interest in saying, hey, can we maybe kind of figure something out? Can we work together? It was, we've got the clout, we're going to use it, and sorry, you lost. I think that that's part of our problem. Part of the, they do. Elections do have consequences. I am a firm believer in that. I suggest the kind of people that we are is even more consequential. Because if you are all in to dominating your opponent, and, and again, I, this has been a journey for me. I started out my political career where I just wanted to win. I didn't care. And I, I got to confess, that was not a godly approach. Because this is not, for me as a Christian, the lens is not about just winning. It is about sharing the truth of the gospel with a broken world. And sometimes in my politics, I forget that. It's just like, you're in front of me. I got to get to 50 plus one. Let's go. You have all these type A personalities that just, man, give me a fight. I mean, I love to fight. Like it is just in my DNA. Let's argue. Let's do this. I need to protect my witness. You know, I can tell somebody elections have consequences. I can say, hey, look, the people decided and they didn't pick you. But am I using that opportunity to advance God's kingdom or not? And if I'm not, why? If I can use an, op- a, a, an opportunity that God's given me 
to bring somebody in and say, hey, you know, I love you. I value you. I may not agree with you. And at the end of the day, I may do something that you're not going to agree with. Somebody's got to make a call, but I care about you. I mean, that will revolutionize the way we look at our politics. And as Christians, I think it's something that we absolutely have to do. So what does all this election stuff mean in terms of contemporary issues that we're facing as Christians? First of all, a lot of the wins that were secured for the Obama administration after those first two years were from executive orders and guidance. The moment Trump takes office, that's gone. And that ranges from immigration enforcement to guidance on transgender bathroom facilities. I mean, it it will run the gamut, but we're talking potentially scrapped like that because they're not laws. They're just orders. A Republican House and Senate will likely fill the Supreme Court vacancy with a strong conservative jurist. Donald Trump has put out a a list of names, and in case you were curious, Donald Trump does not actually know that many jurists. So it is our very own Jeff Sessions that is going to probably have a very strong hand in putting some of those names out there. And I can assure you that many of the names on the list are not only strong conservatives, but there are quite a few who are strong people of faith. And so that is, that is very encouraging in that regard. And then the third thing is Republicans and Trump will set to work on undoing much of Obama's policy agenda, likely starting with the Affordable Care Act. This is not a statement of whether all of y'all should think that's a good thing or not. It's simply a reality. Um, There were many members of the House and Senate that, like me, were run over by a piece of legislation that was solely partisan, and they have been jonesing ever since to have the opportunity to push it back and change it. And if they don't do that, that would be shocking beyond belief. And you'll see a lot of that. When President Obama was running around campaigning and suggesting that His legacy was at risk if Clinton did not win. He was being completely honest that Republicans will undo a lot of his work. What it doesn't mean, some of you will not like to hear this, but I want to be honest with you. Because Justice Kennedy still serves as a swing vote, replacing Scalia with a conservative jurist won't undo many of the SCOTUS Supreme Court decisions on any number of the recent topics. It simply maintains the status quo. So a lot of people are thinking, well, Trump won, he's gonna nominate a conservative, so conservatives will win 5-4. No, not necessarily true. Not only is that not necessarily true, but Justice Roberts has proven to be sort of a moving justice as well. So there's not necessarily going to be five staunch conservative, socially conservative justices that will basically reject all the prior decisions. Keep that in mind. Sorry if that burst your bubble. On the flip side, because I am a policy nerd, I use the Social Security Administration's longevity calculator. Like, I can take your gender and date of birth and figure out how long you have left. They have tons of data. It's very accurate. So I ran this for all of the Supreme Court justices. And (laughs) welcome to my world. (laughs) <laughs> and, and Ginsburg has the shortest life expectancy um, at about eight years. Uh, I want to say Kennedy was at 8.6. Uh, Breyer was at 10.9. Um, and the issue here is that's life expectancy. That's not your time on the bench. So you've got a couple of justices 
that are at or near retirement. Because Trump won, I believe it's highly likely that Ginsburg is going to hold on until she dies. Maybe not. I, I don't think that she would stay on the bench if she were physically incapable of serving. But it's not exactly a physically demanding job. And uh, that, that is probably the next seat that I would anticipate coming available. It could come available in four years. If Trump gets the vacancy, plus a Ginsburg retirement, plus either a Kennedy or Thomas retirement, because there's some tactical play here as well, that if you're an older conservative jurist and you don't want to give that spot away, replace them with a younger 50-something jurist who can stay there for a long time. If that happens within the next four years, or even eight years, you're talking about a very conservative Supreme Court for a very, very long time. It it is the exact opposite of what the fear was that a lot of people had about the court going to the left. We're talking far right. If that happens, as it pertains to issues like life, um, partial birth abortion ban, you get a partial birth abortion ban through Congress. If you can, I think if you can get the vacancy in Ginsburg, you could possibly have one that would get through Congress, be signed by the president, and upheld by the Supreme Court. So in terms of life issues over the next four to eight years, as Christians, this is a a massive time to engage. And you need to speak the truth about these issues. And it is tough. And we need to be prepared to put it all on the line to protect life. I mean, truthfully, folks, in terms of issues that we need to care about, it's real easy to say for a lot of us who have good families, who are secure, who are financially safe, abortion is bad. Because a lot of us, that's just not even a reality. Um, The truth is that there are a lot of women who just feel like they don't have a chance. Like they're saying, I'm not excited about an abortion. I just can't do this. That means our time, our resources, our energy as a church to give every woman every option not to have an abortion. The truth is, if you're looking for a political solution to a cultural problem, you've got it wrong. Is the church, I mean, and, I, and y'all can tell, I mean, I get really emotional about this because it is the church. It is us. It is the, we need to be the hands and feet of Christ in these situations. And if you're using your politics as a poor excuse for your failure to do what God has called you to do, we have got it all wrong, folks. And in this space, as a church, find ways, places for those women to live, the resources for them to raise those children, to do all of these things. But, because the truth is, and nobody wants to hear this, that if, desperate, if you change the law, if you ban those abortions, women who feel desperate will still find a way. And we need, as a church need to be there every step. We need to be there to say, we love you. We don't care how you got there. We don't care what happened we will love you and we will show you Christ. And if you can do that, we're talking game changer, folks. I mean, forget the politics, forget the Supreme Court. We can save a lot of kids. And I think that it's important to remember that in the context of any of these issues, that if you're just hoping that when you went to that polling place and you punched a button, it would fix a problem, you are wrong. 
And this is hard for me because I, I, uh, politics is fun. I can do it in my sleep. I mean, I can rattle off stats and blah. But like, it is your heart that matters. It is your heart that Jesus wants. And it is, I mean, it's not popular in my world to say this stuff because you can be a little Jesus in politics. You can show people that you kind of know some theology, that you can sing Jesus Loves Me, and that you can like look good in a suit. Like Randy Pittman good in a suit. But at the end of the day, like we got to let all that go. I mean, and that's the choice that I've made. I mean, it is hard. I'll tell you, when I write something that I know a lot of people are going to read that says, yeah, I mean, I like really believe this stuff, like for real. And I want other people to see that I was loved so much that I can love you in ways that I wouldn't normally be able to do then the politics, they kind of take care of themselves. Because once people know you care, then they'll work with you. Then they'll engage. And then you don't have to tell them, hey, look, we won, so it stinks for you. Um, and this is an issue, I think, that people don't see. They say, okay, well, Republicans have the trifecta. Of course, they'll get to do everything they ever wanted. No, because of human nature. Because when there is power and when it is consolidated... People disagree on how to use it. We saw this. One of the biggest priorities for Democrats when they had the trifecta was cap-and-trade carbon regulation. They had all the votes. They could have done it. They didn't because they couldn't agree. And I think that's something that's a risk with the Republicans as well, is that just because you all have the R next to your name does not mean that you are the same. And that could be a big problem. I'll close with this, and then hopefully we can get to some questions. And you can ask any question about any of the political things, not just the election. First Peter two sixteen through 17. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Right now, we're in flux as a nation. But we shouldn't be in flux as people who follow the, follow the Lord. And that is an exciting place to be because I don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. I'm not worried about the future because I know who holds my future. And I think that the opportunity that we have to share the gospel right now, to let people see our gospel by the way we engage politics, by the way we engage our professions, by the way we engage our neighbors is a massive opportunity that we cannot afford to lose. And so we don't need to be gloating. We need to get to work. We don't need to be sad if your candidate lost. We need to find ways to engage. So with that, if you've got any questions, I think we have a mic around here, and I'll do my best to answer. Anybody have a question? Thank you for turning my election day around. Wow. Um, But my question is, you mentioned that with this Republican trifecta that we are on the path to earn, that we could basically get to make a lot of decisions that are in our favor, both as Republicans and as people of faith. Um, You know, if some of those decisions, um, though um, positive as far as um, Christian terms of things like the definition of marriage and life, um, would leave a lot of people hurting, um, a lot of non-believers sure. hurting. 
So how do we speak to those people as we feel like we're doing what is right for our faith? How do we still minister to those who are going to be hurt by the decisions um, that are best for us as, as Christians? Uh, so this will probably be an answer that will, a lot of people won't like, but that's okay. Uh, I think that we have to make sure that in the process of honoring God, we are not trying to fix the fall through government. I want to be real clear about that. My generation feels a lot different about this than some of my more senior and experienced friends um, who will happily use the government to control social behavior, to, to impose religious norms. A, that's unconstitutional. Um, B, it's also potentially very destructive. I mean, this is where, for example, my dear friend Joe Godfrey and I agree, disagree passionately about the role of the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board here in Alabama. I view it as pointless bureaucracy where people should be free to make decisions even if I disagree with them. Joe views it as drunkenness is a problem and we need the government to control, to try to control those outcomes. We both are men of faith. We both look at it very differently. And I think that's where we're kind of in flux even on these type of issues because, for example... The marriage issue. Well, look at the polling. And this isn't bad polling like we saw last night. This is longitudinal polling over a really long time. My generation, it's like 80%. 80% don't care about gay marriage. Not as a theological matter, but as a government matter. That the government, whether the government gets to weigh in or not. And so... Those are realities that may shape some of the outcomes in spite of the fact that you might have conservative jurists on the bench. And those things will shape out, shake out as they may. It could, be the fact, it could be that Overfell v. Hodges is somehow overturned. It could be that any number of these decisions change. The thing that I would say to everybody is, are you, and Danny asked me this about a, uh, about a gay day at a, at a baseball game or something. Well, guess what? Do they need do gay individuals need to know about Jesus or not? They're no different, and and I think that's where you need to say, "I'm going to engage. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care about you." If your one-off to somebody is, "Let me tell you some biblical truth," see ya. That's destructive. It's not helpful. Build relationships with people. If the only people you ever talk to are people that already love Jesus and know Jesus, what's the point? Like, I'm glad you're not forsaking the fellowship of believers, but you're also not reaching out to anybody. And that's something that I think a lot of church people miss about Jesus is Jesus didn't care. He'd touch anybody. He would engage anybody. The worst, the best, whatever. I want you to know the truth. And so... Be very careful on these issues if it's, for example, something that conservatives might like. The issue is not important as the person. Make sure you focus on the person first, and then maybe you can talk about the issue. What else? Next question. This may be a more of a political question than a Christian question, but I felt like the budget was not talked a lot. It was not a hot topic in this race. Um, do you feel that way? And if so, what, what do you think? Trump can do something about? Well, part of the problem is we just like to spend money. Like, it's just fun. And it's a problem. 
Trump has said that he's going to spend a lot on infrastructure, like a trillion dollars on infrastructure, which if you're a conservative, you're probably like scratching your head, like the Republicans like going to spend a lot of money. In truth, the budget analysis by the Tax Foundation, which is nonpartisan, looked at Clinton's plan, looked at Trump's plan, and actually said, well, Trump's plan will actually increase the deficit. Um, It's math. I mean, in terms of this, again, the Bible speaks to these things about financial policy and how we should look at money and what we should do with it. And I think we didn't hear a lot about that because the answer was, we're just going to spend some things. And, and so there wasn't as much of a distinction. There wasn't an austerity program versus a spending program. I think we have to be very careful, and this is, again, just kind of personal, that anytime we're generating tax dollars and applying legal force behind that, it, it's confiscatory. We're saying, we're taking something from you to do something with it. And I think we just need to do a better job of that. Like in the sense of, even here in Alabama, if you're going to bring money in the door, what are you doing with it? And for those who are Christians who work in and around government, be responsible with it. If you're going, I'm not one of these people that says government should have no money because then you have no government and then you have real issues with civil society. On the other hand, I think we need to be responsible and we need to be good stewards. And I haven't seen that. I'm worried that there's not a very clear plan to move in that direction. I think we all should be very concerned about that. But here's an opportunity again to come together and say, hey, we all have different priorities. We all have different things. How are we going to help people first as a church, as individuals? And then how does that relate to government? And I I would admonish you guys here in the church. The poor will always be with us. We know that. Scripture, Scripture tells us that. So either you take care of them and you help develop solutions to create economic mobility, to come up with options so that people aren't hurting in such acute ways, or somebody's going to take your money and do it for you. Those are your options. And I think we as Christians need to say, we're going to take this charge more seriously. This isn't just about throwing my 10% to the church in the tithe, which Danny will remind you, it's a good idea. You should do that. Um, but, but it's more about what else are you doing? Are you taking in somebody that needs a breather? Are you helping somebody that's financially down on your luck? Are you personally doing that? Especially in this community, there are a lot of people with means who have worked very hard. They have earned it and God has blessed their labor. And you need to make sure that you're looking for people to help because one of the issues that we have right now is a government that's spending so much on social programming and things like that because a lot of that stuff that was done by the church, the church just doesn't have the capacity to do it anymore. And even if it did, there's a lot of people that aren't doing it. A couple others. Auburn University's Matt Nelson. What's a winning strategy for how evangelical conservatives can recover from, I think, 80% of us or more supported Donald Trump who said some pretty ugly stuff during campaigns and before that? I wish I had a good answer to this. I don't think you can. I think this was, in a very real sense, um, and I'll put a fine point on it, it was a deal with the devil in some respects. 
it was, we know this, what we're seeing here does not match up with what we believe, and it ain't even close. And people basically said, I hear that, I see that, but you know, I see the other option, and I'm just making a call here. And I I was one of those people that struggled mightily with this. I looked at it, and I was like, "I, I, I know better. And I think that will be a perpetual battle for evangelical Christians is to square that circle. I think we have to try. I think we have to engage. Some of the stuff Trump said about women, it's appalling. We need to make it very clear in our number that we don't tolerate that type of behavior. We do not give it quarter. Because if we do, again, coming back to my point about our testimony, then we surrender that. And so I think that we have to be very, very proactive in engaging our communities, especially engaging those people who just assume by virtue of the fact that you're a Republican who may or may not have voted for Trump, you're a misogynist, you're a racist, you're homophobic. I mean, pick all the nasty adjectives that are out there. I mean, I even saw one headline today that said white one that this is, you know, essentially a huge racist move. Well, you know what it made me think? It made me think about our friends at Greater Shiloh Baptist Church that may look at this election very differently than some of the people in this room. And you've got to figure out how you're going to engage your brothers and sisters in Christ. You've got to figure out how to engage the world. And... One of, my, one of my kids' favorite songs, it's, I can't remember who sings it, but it's the Let My Life Be the Proof. And I think that's the answer, is let your life be the proof of who and what you are. If people can see Jesus in you and how you treat them, they're not, wor- not going to be as worried about your political leanings and things like that. However, if you just rely on the political infrastructure, if you rely on the politics to kind of spread your viewpoint... The church is in trouble. What else? Come on, you can ask anything. Sure. For the sake of the podcast, I'm going to ask you to speak in the microphone. Well, uh, I, I really think that the uh, just over the years being on teams and such that the real key to them getting anything done is one, to be humble, which is going to be hard with what just got elected, I think. Maybe not, who knows. But, uh, and then, and, and that means like, you know, Obamacare, you know, was very ill-conceived and, and everything that goes with it from a practical standpoint, but, and I'm just using this as an example, but the, uh, but is we've got to engage the other side. I mean, you know, Zeke is Emmanuel that devised that. I think that would be the first person I call to say, hey, come in here, help us kill it, and fix our health care. He knows something about health care. I think that would be, I mean, as much as I dislike the things that they did and tried to do, I think that's the sense of what you're saying needs to be done, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, the the comment, if y'all couldn't hear it, was, you know, reaching across the aisle, reaching out, working together on these things. That's the answer. 
I think that I want to give some concrete steps on what that looks like because we hear that a lot. We don't know what that looks like. In your social media activity, I'm looking at you guys, particularly over here. Um, If it's not true, if you don't know it's true, don't share it with other people. I mean, the Bible speaks about truth a whole lot. So we should be huge fans. And if you read something, you have something called confirmation bias, where it's what you want to hear, and then you share it with someone else on social media, and it's not true. That's a lie. As Christians, we should not do this. I implore you, resist. Do not do that. Also, beware of the water cooler. Maybe more this area over here. Um, beware the scenario where it's just kind of common parlance that you just talk about it. Well, you know that that uh, that Obamacare and the thing, and they're just low down and all the... And you just kind of get into this group mentality of the other side is the bad guy. Like, we're not at a civil war. People will disagree with your politics. You know what that's called? Freedom. We have missionaries in a lot of places that we support. They're not free to just share their opinions about stuff publicly. This is, a, this is not a flaw of our system. It is a benefit. And it is a privilege that we should exercise judiciously. That is hard for a lot of people to understand. But just because you can getting a little tiff because it's easy on social media. It's easy around the water cooler. It's easy to have people agree with you. Find some people that disagree with you. Find some people who don't share your views at all. Maybe talk to them about Jesus. Maybe talk to them about politics. I don't care. You need to know people who don't agree with you and you need to be friends. That will help you so much. It will help you so much in your testimony and evangelism. It will help you just be normal. And that's really hard right now because we live in these echo chambers where we're constantly seeking for our own views to be affirmed. And you're not the center of the universe. Remember that. And that is so, so hard in a culture where the culture tells us a counter-biblical narrative of, yeah, You are the center of the universe. Whatever you want is okay and you should get more of it because you deserve it. Our faith says you deserve death. But thanks be to God. We need to know the difference between the two and we need to relay the difference between the two. So those are some concrete things that you can do. I can't think of a better way for us to end than that right there. I know that uh, the choir and those involved in CBC will have to go now, so you are certainly dismissed. We're going to break up into small groups of five to eight people and do some discussion on these four questions. And in about 15 minutes, I'm going to gather us together. We'll talk and close in prayer. So and for break, anybody that wants my card right here, if you have any other questions, I'll leave them up here. And grab he does landscape work. He babysits. He can do whatever you need. Come get that card. Interpretive dance. <laughs> break up into small groups now, and I'll uh, be with you in about 15 minutes. Have a great night. Dr. Westmoreland's going to be back in here next week to lead us. If you don't have election fatigue, I highly encourage you to be here. Have a great night.